This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Majid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. December 8th is traditionally said to commemorate Shakyamuni's enlightenment. So it's fitting for us to reflect back on the old stories that come down to us about that event. Because even If we can, we are unsure historically who he was or what happened. The stories that have been told and that come down to us shape our picture of practice and of realization. One part of the story I'd like to focus on to begin is the idea that Shakyamuni was a prince and was raised under very special conditions. Conditions not only of luxury, but of unusual protection. It's said that his mother died shortly after his birth. And his father raised him in such a way as to try to protect him from then on from any knowledge of death or sickness or old age. And that somehow, miraculously, he led that kind of sheltered life all the way up into young adulthood. When one day, sort of wandering a little bit outside the confines of his usual life, he encountered a beggar a sick person, an old man, saw a corpse. It is said that he was shocked or even traumatized by seeing these things, seeing their reality, a reality that he had been completely shielded from growing up. And in this story in the transmission of the lamp, it said, he exclaimed, these things must ultimately be rejected. They were unacceptable. He had to find some way to go beyond them. Reading that passage where 
inclined to say, well, good luck with that. But it set him off on a quest, which culminated in a realization. But of what? Now, the first thing I would say about this initial trauma that he suffered on seeing sickness, old age, and death was that it caused him to repudiate all the things that had failed to protect him from them. Suddenly, he felt that family and love and material possessions. None of these things worked to ward off these terrible things. None of the things that he had, no matter how wonderful or how good, whether things or other people, were antidotes or barriers to old age, sickness, and death. And so in his reject, trying to reject the three terrible things, he also turned against everything that had previously been considered good in his life because they let him down. He thought he was safe and sheltered, and he wasn't. So part of what happens is that the ordinary goods of life are seen as, as unsatisfactory. They're unreliable. They're impermanent. They offer no shield. Now all that's true. But in a certain way, whoever said they should. The idea that all those goods of life were a failure, in some sense, is an artifact of the kind of bizarrely artificial way in which he was raised, in which those things were set up to shield him from the terrible reality of old age, sickness, and death. And of course, if you set them up as shields, they're bound to fail. This reflects, in a way, a kind of stage of life that we all have to go through one way or another. The story of Shakyamuni is told in a kind of exaggerated mythological form where the young prince is raised in a kind of uh, walled garden of luxury and uh, safety. 
But we could see that as a metaphor for the way we all grow up and develop. First, in the relative safety or security of our relationship with the mother and in the family, the child growing up to feel secure and loved and taken care of, and how that inevitably life is going to break into that initial sense of uh, safety and security. Now, in normal development, we say that part of the mother's role is to help regularize and restabilize things when they get disrupted. Disruptions are inevitable, but part of what the mother does is not protect the child from ever being disrupted, but to show the child that disruptions can be soothed and survived and corrected, and the baseline of security can be reestablished. In one way or another, we grow up trying to create for ourselves an extension of that early world in which we seek comfort and safety and security in the midst of others. In our reading of uh, Van der Kolk, we can see this described as that baseline level of social regulation. This is the relational baseline in which we normally function. And he talks about the breakdown of that regulation in terms of things like fight or flight reactions or the complete collapse of the system into, through immobilization into a kind of uh, uh, sense of uh, helplessness and despair and immobilization. So in any case, you could see Shakyamuni's reaction at seeing old age sickness and death as a kind of traumatic breakdown of the social regulation that he grew up in, with. And he had this uh, fight or flight reaction and said, I got to get out of here. I got to do something about this and took off. Now, he then embarked on various disciplines of self-regulation. I could not rely in any way on these externals of the world, of other people. They all let me down. So I am going to try to practice ex intense, extreme versions of self-control and self-regulation. 
disciplines of mind control, of totally quieting thought and emotion, of bodily control through various kinds of ascetic or yogic practices. I will get my mind or my body under such control that somehow it will transcend or become impervious to old age, sickness, and death. And it's said that he practiced those things and mastered them, but after six years, it gave them up, realizing they too could not be the kind of barrier that he was hoping for. And it said that finally, he simply sat down. Stayed with his experience as it is, saying he just has to get to the bottom of what it is to be alive, to be subject to these things. And after sitting all night, it said that he looked up and saw a star twinkling. And in that moment, he said, oh, that's me. What kind of realization is that? I like to imagine it's a realization that he is inseparable from this whole world of change and interdependence that he had spent all these years trying to flee or master. Not only am I part of it, I am it, inseparably part of life. Now, what, what does that mean? And how does it relate to the struggle that set him on his journey? Well, personally, I would think one kind of outcome to the story might have been he went home, went back to his wife and son, and community and said, oh, I'm glad I got that out of my system. I finally realized that sickness, old age, and death are not horrible intrusions into my life. They are my life. And I'm sorry, I blamed you all for not being able to protect me from them. But that's not your job. Nobody can do that. Nothing can do that. I became angry and disappointed that all my material possessions did not shield me, make keep me safe. But they really weren't supposed to in the first place.
the cooning on the wall is not going to prevent me from growing old and getting Alzheimer's. Didn't prevent the cooning from having to go through those things. But why ask that of a painting? That painting can bring joy and delight into my life while it can. The way it did in his painting of it, it does in my viewing of it. It won't protect me from getting old, and it won't fly me to the moon. But why should I ask it of that? Why can't I just take delight in it? Love, attachment, family, none of those things will prevent me from getting sick and dying someday. But that's not their fault. They're not supposed to be able to do those things. They are part of life. All of it is life. It's one big whole. And when I realize this is me, I take in impermanence and interconnection, but I also take in things and people and the world and relations. Now, when we go on retreat, when Zen students around the world do intense sessions during this Rohatsu week, in some way trying to replicate or participate in Shakyamuni's experience, we reenact something of home-leaving. And we reenact something of putting aside all the things that we usually use to shield or comfort ourselves in our daily lives. And we try to face directly things like pain and sleeplessness and not having the kind of food we want to eat or the kind of uh, place we want to sleep or the kind of interaction with others that we're used to having. And in part, that's an, a very valuable exercise, discipline, in seeing that some of the things that we try to hold on to so routinely but desperately are inessentials. That we don't need them the way we think we need them. And that simply being present, even in the midst of pain or difficulty, as an aliveness or a vitality, That is a kind of unexpected joy, being with just this, regardless of its content. We're so sure most of the time that the content of our life is what we have to manage and control. But in Seshin, we're just alive, even in pain and difficulty. 
and allowing ourselves to just be there can be a revelation. But what we come back to is this reestablishment of our baseline social regulation. That's what we as social human animals, that's our environment. That's what we are and that's what we need. Now, some people seek that kind of stable, secure regulation in the routine and discipline of a monastery. Going to a monastery doesn't absolve us of any of those needs. It just transforms the form in which we meet them. And in a way, it's very good to get the lesson that they can be met in this very broad range of, of ways, ways that we didn't think were possible. But I think we, particularly as lay people, need to come back to an appreciation of the world. We don't have to hate things because they're going to go away. Don't have to hate mommy because she leaves. She's coming back. The comforts of our life, they may all go away. But we, when we have them, enjoy them. Don't try to turn them into something they're not. But on the other hand, don't denigrate what they are. That is part of life as it is. And that's part of being able to look at the whole and say, that's me. That's me. 